Welcome to Warm Regards, a podcast of climate change conversations. I'm Jacqueline Gill, Ice Age ecologist and assistant professor at the University of Maine. Joining me this week is my co-host, Ramesh Langani, associate professor of biology at Doan University in Nebraska. It's really good to be with you again, Ramesh. Yeah, it's great to be back on the air or on the recording. I don't know how to say that. We'll say on the air. Yeah, uh, we have all, all these like throwbacks to the, the age of radio that That's right. suddenly seem like they'll be really dated, like dialing someone on a, on a phone is like, no, we don't really dial anymore. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, there's been a, a, a lot going on since we last chatted, including an election kind of happened. Yeah. Uh, for some of us, it's still ongoing. We don't know who our, our representative will be here in, in Maine District 2 just yet. Still counting out the impacts of that ranked choice voting. The, I think the first national U.S. election to use ranked choice, which is, has been fun. But uh, speaking of the House, things are going to look pretty different, which I'm pretty excited about. How, how are you feeling about the election overall? Yeah, I felt good. You know, in my head, it sort of went as expected. The Democrats took the House. Um, the Senate was always, I think, going to be a, a, a stretch. But I'm excited about who got elected in this most recent election. It seems to be a diverse coalition of lawmakers, first-time lawmakers. And so I think there's going to be a lot, there's a lot of great representation in there. And so I'm really excited about that. And a bunch of scientists too, right? We, we, yeah, we did, pre- we did yeah. pretty well, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So along those lines, I'm really excited because this turnover in the House means that we're getting a new leader on the House Science Committee. And chances are this person will be pro-science and not a climate change denier, which is is just I can't express how happy this makes me. For those of you who have not been following the House Science Committee really closely, this has historically been a major source of stress and frustration for scientists in general and climate scientists in particular. Um, A lot of really spurious attacks of scientists who've had to testify uh, on the floor. And um, there's a reason we have a climate science legal defense fund. And, and a lot of that has to do with some of the really anti-science folks who have led that committee in the past. The word on the street is that it's pretty likely that ranking member uh, Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson of Texas is slated to take over, hopefully. There was a really great article or interview with her recently, and she actually put out a statement recently saying that she wanted to address the problem of climate change. And they asked her how she would do that. And her response was, how specifically we have not yet determined because we have not even organized yet, but we know what the challenges are. We have some ideas to how we might get to the knowledge and procedure which we can address it. The information is not foreign. We are experiencing climate change every day. What we have to decide is a sensible course of research and sensible course as recommendations for addressing the issues related to climate change. And, you know, she talks specifically over and over again about how important the science itself is to counter arguments about the causes of climate change. And so I think I think we've got somebody who's going to be really friendly to a, an evidence-based approach, which is going to be quite refreshing. Yeah, I think it's going to be great to have someone leading the committee who is not trying to undermine science by falsely lifting up the idea of skepticism. And I think that's been happening in the, you know, before this election, you know, this this sort of, well, science is about skepticism. Well, Mm -hmm. yes, but there are things that we know, and it's important to balance that skepticism with, you know, healthy skepticism, right? And how do we do that and and make policy decisions based on the things that we know? So it's going to be refreshing to have that perspective. Yeah. And the the, the committee itself has been really antagonistic towards science and scientists in the past. And Representative Johnson is a woman of color. Uh, She's a black woman coming from the STEM community. She has a background in nursing and that in and of itself is exciting. And then, you know, again, just I can't hit 
home enough the point that it's pretty exciting that our 115th Congress is going to have a physicist, a microbiologist, chemists, a bunch of engineers, a mathematician, three nurses, 15 more doctors, a few veterinarians. I mean, this is, you know, we've had so many concerns about science, many of which we've talked on the show or about on the show in the last few years. And this just feels like a, a step in the right direction to me. Yeah. And, but I also think it's important that we as a community of scientists who are excited that there are scientists now as lawmakers, that we understand that just like we know there are limits to science, we make sure that we don't put all of these expectations on this group of scientists, you know, mm -hmm. that they are going to be exploring new areas of lawmaking and the realities of politics. If they are bringing evidence-based thinking and evidence-based logic to their lawmaking, that's going to be excellent. We have so many different types of scientists, as you highlighted. I think it's going to be a really great way to sort of connect these different fields of science in policy. And at least just to have those perspectives represented, you know, they're obviously policy is, you know, needs a lot of different kinds of voices and a lot of different perspectives. And just, it's just really, I think it'll be nice to, that science will have a seat at the table because so many of our decisions both influence science and how it's done and also, you know, really need science or at least the perspective that scientists have to offer, whether we're talking about public health issues or climate change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's there's been some really good forward movement around just even framing climate change in general in terms of, of a human issue as sort of a, a, a social justice issue, so to speak. And and I'm thinking there are several headlines that come to mind right away. I'm thinking not only in terms of the group of kids that are suing the government for inaction on climate change, and they're framing it as literally the, the government is threatening their future survival. I just feel like this growing sense of urgency in recent years where I've really started seeing people framing climate change as more of an existential problem. Problem that's that's affecting our lives, our very existence as a society, and rather just an abstract one or something that maybe happens to nature. And you might see climate change in a documentary, but it's not something in your backyard. For me, I think that was really reflected well in a recent New York Times op-ed on reincarnation. Bear with me here. I promise mm -hmm. this is relevant. <laughs> it basically uses reincarnation as a thought experiment for climate change. It was written by uh, Michelle Alexander, who is a new New York Times columnist. I'm really excited that she's joined. And what's really interesting about this piece is that it's it's written by a civil rights lawyer and legal scholar. And if her name sounds familiar, you might have read her book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. So what's interesting is that she's a non-scientist writing about climate change, and she uses this interesting rhetorical device, specifically this idea that if reincarnation were real, would we be making different decisions about climate change? I.e., if I knew I was going to reincarnate after I died, I would still basically have to live in a world where I would be living with the consequences of my decisions in my current life, right? Like, we often think of climate change as a problem for future generations, but what if those future generations were us? Yeah. So I grew up in a Hindu household. So reincarnation was always flying around the house, religiously speaking. And so it was a really interesting article from that perspective, because I think it makes a really salient point about the ability to sort of imagine the lives of other people being impacted by climate change. So who are these other people? And I know that there's been a lot of work, there's been a lot of articles about how climate change is going to impact the poor more than it's going to impact the rich. And so the idea that if we had to be reincarnated almost randomly, which is what she brings up in the article, as, you know, we, we, maybe we were a rich American and now we get reincarnated as a poor person in, in India, what would that do for, for our climate action today? 
it was just a really interesting idea of this sort of random regeneration. But I think it's an important point because I think it's really difficult for people in relatively rich countries like the U.S. to imagine how the livelihoods of people far, far away, because in our wealth, we have a lot of structures that buffer us from climate change. We have things like crop insurance. We have things like that. And we're rich enough to do that. But countries that don't have those structures are really going to feel the impacts of climate change much more immediately. And so it was a really interesting premise to put you in a different frame of mind. What if you had to put yourself in someone else's climate shoes? Yeah. And it, and we've talked a lot about empathy on the show too. And, and I think that really it's a thought experiment that forces you to stretch your intellectual muscles a little bit, but also your empathic ones. And just by imagining yourself in someone else's shoes, that's almost the literal definition of, of what empathy is. And what I found particularly powerful about Michelle Alexander's piece is that she's not a scientist, but she's taking this really creative approach to add a sense of personal urgency to climate change. Now, we've historically thought of climate as a scientific issue and and not necessarily a, a very human one, though that's definitely changing. And we've had part of the project of this show is actually to push that change. And there have been just gallons of ink spilled on how to do that effectively, how to reach people to change their hearts and minds, so to speak. And we've had guests like Catherine Hayhoe come on the show to talk about the importance of, say, empathy in climate change communication. There's even an entire field of research that's devoted to the science of what works and what doesn't, not just in science communication, but in climate science communication specifically. And it can be kind of frustrating for some of us as scientists to realize that a lot of our training has not prepared us for this world, for this challenge of making our work meaningful outside of our own community. Our training covers things like statistics or computer simulations, maybe something like analyzing an ice core in a lab or identifying Arctic plants. We're constantly in the process of turning the earth into numbers, and those numbers get represented by little dots or lines on a graph. And then we try to turn those wiggles and bits back into stories, stories that tell us that the earth is getting warmer, we're starting to see the effects in our ecosystems and our communities. And in science, we often talk about outreach or science communication as a process of turning that data into a narrative that can be accessible or even fun for non-scientists. One of the most powerful ways that we can do that is through storytelling. Maybe it's a film or a video game or even a children's book. And so I'm really excited for today's guest because she's such a great model of a scientist who uses narrative and storytelling to communicate the urgency of climate change to a broader audience. Join me in welcoming Dr. Kate Marvel, an associate research scientist at Columbia University's Department of Applied Physics and Applied Mathematics, and NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Welcome, Kate. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's so exciting. Um, yeah, it's great to have you. Firstly, for those who might not be familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about your day job as a scientist. What do you research? Sure. So um, I have the best job in the world because I get to study my favorite planet, which is amazing. I kind of do work in, in two main research directions. Um, so I'm really interested in what we call detection and attribution of climate change, which is basically what does climate change look like and how do we know that it's happening? At first glance, you might say like, well, obviously it's global warming, stupid. But it turns out that global warming has impacts on things like rainfall patterns, cloud cover, soil moisture. Um, and so I'm really interested in figuring out how climate change affects those things that we care about and then using climate models and um, satellite observations to try to figure out what's happening. 
I'm also really interested in something called climate sensitivity, which is basically a fancy science word for how hot is it going to get and why don't we know that? So, you know, kind of important questions. Yeah, totally. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I've known about your work for a while, both in terms of your research and the other things that you do in your copious free time. But uh, what really inspired me to want to reach out and talk to you on the show is that you wrote a story and it's called Slaying the Climate Dragon, sort of a fairy tale or a fable. And it's pretty different from how scientists usually talk about climate change. I'd love to hear what inspired you to talk about your science in this particular way. How long ago was the IPCC degree and a half report? I have such a weird sense of time now because everything seems to take both forever and, and not very long. Was that like a month ago now? Maybe like a month ago, okay. something like that. Yeah. yeah. I also have the same problem because I'm a paleoecologist. So it's like this whole year is like one tiny blip in, in the longer scheme of things. So yeah, I have I've time compression issues for sure. Right. But at the same time, there's like so much. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Well, along these lines, someone was recently, uh, someone posted on, on Facebook that the Tide Pod thing was like just February of this year. And I was like, no way. <laughs> that feels like it was like four years ago. It does feel like it was four years ago. Yeah. Black Panther came out this year. That blew my mind. Okay. Like, oh my yeah. God. That feels like another lifetime ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, IPCC degree and a half report came out. And I have to say, I was pretty skeptical of the use of that report initially. I was, I was pretty grumpy about it because mm -hmm. I was like, oh, we're probably not going to do this. Um, it, it kind of feels like fan fiction. You know, what if we did get serious about climate change? And, and yeah. so I was grumpy yeah. about it. But what really surprised me is how much coverage it got. They really seem to have have struck a nerve for one of the first times that I can remember lots and lots of people were talking about climate change like not just the usual suspects and I felt that um, mm -hmm. there was this kind of narrative starting to emerge among people that I really liked and respected which was well we're all doomed what's the point point?" and yep. I was thinking I have never read a story where that happens can you imagine if Lord of the Rings you know, Gandalf was like, well, somebody's going to need to take the ring to Mordor. And they're like, that sounds hard. Let's not even try. Yeah. Right? Like, end of book. Yeah. That would, be, that would be a really boring story. And so we tell stories about people trying to do things in the face of impossible odds all the time. We respect that. And so I wanted to talk about the IPCC report in a new way. Because I honestly felt like there were a lot of really smart climate scientists, really good climate communicators talking about the science of it. And I kind of felt like my voice is not needed there. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was just going to follow up with the idea that it's not even so much the research that needs to be communicated, but it's the, I guess, the you know, people need to be inspired to do something about it. To go back to your narrative of L The Lord of the Rings, as, as a fellow sort of science fiction and fantasy nerd, that really resonates with me because, sure, there's a lot of uncertainty about exactly what's going on and, and what the outcomes will be. But overall, the, the general inspiration for taking the ring to Mordor is that there's this pretty easily identifiable threat. And we all pretty much agree that something's going on, unless I guess you're allied with the enemy, and that we just need to do something about it. And that feels very salient here, because there's been so much of a focus on using the data to convince people that there's a problem. While meanwhile, the scientific community has been in agreement that there's been a problem for quite some time. And the real issue has been getting anybody to do anything about it. And often it feels like by the time we convince people that there is something wrong, 
it's going to be too late because now people have just slipped into this defeatism that, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. We're all doomed. Definitely. I feel like, and I'd love to get your take on this. When we talk about science communication, I wonder if that kind of sets up this view of us as scientists, and we do have knowledge and we are experts in things, sort of passing down this knowledge from from on high. And a lot of the things I write, a lot of things I think about, it's honestly just me working through how do I feel about this? And so it's not really, you know, I am the expert, listen to me. It's me trying to work through my own thoughts and, okay, what is a narrative that works for me personally? I think it's a good point. And oftentimes I feel like I don't speak out enough because suddenly we have to represent all of climate science. We have to represent all of the climate change narrative And that's beyond the expertise of any one person, right? I'm not a policy person by training. I don't know a lot about carbon tax. I'm not the world's expert on geoengineering. And yet I feel as though as soon as you start talking about climate change, especially with members of a more skeptical public, there are a lot of questions and it's easy to ask questions that are, you know, completely outside of our wheelhouse. And yet we're we're expected to represent all of climate science in a way that, I mean, you would never start asking, you know, your vascular surgeon to start telling you all about the the human brain or the musculoskeletal system or vasectomies or something like that. So I think what's interesting, though, is that I think we do ask our doctors about other parts of the body that they're not specialists in, but the public seems to be okay when the physician says, that's not my field of expertise, go talk to a vascular surgeon, right? Mm, I'm a I make a referral. Yeah. And I think you bring up a really good point, Jacqueline, that when we are asked about climate change, if we don't have a solution, for whatever reason, if we say, well, I'm not an expert on carbon tax, that for whatever reason seems to weaken the strength of the information that we do bring to the table. But I think it also highlights the fact that in those conversations, if someone says, well, what can we do about it? To me, that's actually a really hopeful thing, right? That's a really hopeful moment for us as climate scientists to say, all right, well, you're right, we can do something about it. Here are my thoughts, kind of like what you were saying, Kate, us working through issues, and we just acknowledge the limits and we say, a better person might be someone from Citizens Climate Lobby or somebody from more of an economic think tank, something like that. And to bring it back to Kate's original question, by having to to be that representative of all of climate change knowledge, that turns us into robots, basically, where we're just sort of repeating snippets of information, or we're, we're basically expected to have this encyclopedic knowledge about this topic, I feel like the more we get pushed into that frame of thinking and communicating, the less we have space to be human beings, right? And the less that we are able to say, well, I personally have these feelings and I personally have this experience of climate change in my life as a human being living on earth. And I think that's one of the things that I really love about Kate, about your work is that you aren't afraid to go out there and say, I love planet Earth. This is my experience as a person on planet Earth who cares about climate change. I am researching these aspects of the climate system because I care about the Earth, which is where I live, right? And so I'm curious about sort of your process in terms of that just feels like a really brave thing to do, right? To be that personal and to to center yourself as a citizen of planet Earth and use that as a reason why you're doing this work. So, I mean, was that hard for you? Were there, were there challenges or or pushbacks to kind of taking those kinds of framings? 
I think that's a great question. Something that I find really liberating is to sort of go back to your doctor metaphor. If you're a vascular surgeon, it's not like asking you, what about podiatry? It's asking the vascular surgeon, what are your thoughts about mortality? And obviously, as a doctor, you encounter this all the time, and you have thoughts that are kind of imbued with your experience. But there's no right answer. You know, there's no one way to think about this. And I think about climate change in much the same way. There is scientific fact underpinning climate change. And there is such thing as expertise. And I have a small portion of that expertise, as, as do we all. But there's no right way to feel about climate change. There's no right answer. And so I really enjoy not being in the position of telling people what to do all the time. As a science communicator, sometimes you find yourself in this very uncomfortable position where you know a thing because you've spent your entire life studying it. And that kind of alienates you from other people because they maybe know other things that you don't know and they don't know that thing. But climate change is affecting everybody. And there's no right way to think about it. And so when you move the conversation, you sort of fight for the existence of those scientific facts and you don't deny those. But if you move the conversation to how does this make you feel? What should we do about this? What stories should we tell about this? That's something that everybody can participate in. And also the, the focus on the personal, I think, also gives more space for that diversity of feelings, right? By saying, this is how I feel you're both validating other people who feel that way, but you're also creating space for someone to say, well, that's not how I feel. I feel this way. And this is my response. And just by doing that, you're opening up the conversation and letting some air into the room. While the conversation about the facts or what we know about the climate system or what we know about the physics of how the earth works, they're a little bit more black and white. I mean, obviously, there's some uncertainty in our estimates and measurements, and there are lots of questions that we still have. But at the same time, there's not, it's not as squishy, right, as our emotional response. Definitely. And, you know, I'm a physicist. I find the physics fascinating, but I also love people. And I find people endlessly fascinating. And I find that it's much easier to talk to people about feelings than it is to talk to people about physics. It's just a totally different thing. And if you can talk about physics and also talk about feelings at the same time, then you can have a really rich and fascinating conversation. So Kate, this sort of leads into a question that's been sort of running around my head through this conversation. Is this before the show, I was doing some homework on you and, and I saw that you've done a TED talk and that you did a story collider. And, you know, this got me thinking about the popularity of, of storytelling, you know, podcasts like Serial or, you know, are blown up and things like that. You know, so I just want to get your general thoughts. Why? And you sort of touched on this, but why do you think people are so, you know, why do they connect with stories so strongly? And why have you found yourself gravitating towards sort of a more narrative structure as a technique for climate change communication? Oh, I mean, that's a good question. Like talk about, you know, outside my wheelhouse. Why do human beings gravitate towards stories? I, I have <laughs> no idea. Um, I know that I do. There's got to be a physics metaphor in there somewhere, right. though. <laughs> yeah. Particles, some things, I don't know. Yeah. You know, maybe it's just because I have a really short attention span and I am very easily bored. So I, I have a lot of empathy for people who get bored by, you know, more facts, more charts. And I find that I, the things that really stick with me, the things that I retain and the things that I kind of love or hate or have a really sort of strong emotional reaction to, those are, those are stories. And so I am fascinated by this question of what are good stories, true stories to tell about climate change. 
because that's that's just something that interests me and i find it it helps me talk to other people it helps me learn about other people and and i love that um and did you find sorry oh, but no. did you find that to be like a deliberate choice or in your science communication or was was this sort of just something that sort of came naturally in thinking about and communicating around climate change or learning more about climate change? You know, I, I feel like when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to, to write and I didn't know what I was going to write about. So I thought maybe I'll, I'll go out and I'll have some life experiences and I'll, I'll write about those life experiences, whatever they may be. Um, and they'll help me think about things to write about. And so I wouldn't call myself a writer right now, but I don't really approach talking about climate change from the perspective of how do I communicate the science? Mm -hmm. I approach climate change from the perspective of I like writing mm -hmm. and this is what I do. And this is a really interesting thing to write about. If I was an artist, I would write about art. If I was a plumber, I would write about plumbing. We really have in, in this culture kind of put up these weird barriers between science and art or science and, and not science. Mm -hmm. And I don't really think they should be there. I agree with you. I think that those barriers absolutely exist, especially between science and art. Do you think that there's something in the way we're trained as scientists that sort of beats the artist out of us. I wouldn't say that. Um, I would. I yeah, that was sort of an aggressive. <laughs> that was a little too aggressive. Sorry. No more violent metaphors here. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I feel like it might even be the opposite. I think we take people who see themselves as artists, who see themselves as creatives, and we beat the science out of them. There are so many people who come up to me and say, oh, I'm, I'm bad at math or I, I don't understand science. I'm not smart enough. And that drives me crazy because that's almost always not true. Yeah. But we just we have this concept of what it is to be a scientist and all of the sort of toxic things that come along with that. Like that concept is generally a white man, not a first generation mm -hmm. college student, not low income, talks a particular way. And that's really dangerous. If you can't rattle off all the digits of pi, you're not a good scientist. And like, I don't know about you guys, but like, I have never had to memorize pi in my day-to-day -day work. <laughs> you're a very bad scientist. Then I'm a very bad scientist because <laughs> 0. 0.14, that's it. That's all I got. Oh, so I scientist here. <laughs> Yay, you win. Yes. <laughs> Tell that to my tenure committee. Uh, I. What's so funny about that is that the scientists I know are knitters and musicians and they play ultimate frisbee and they're amazing painters and photographers and bakers. I mean, we we're creative people, many of us. And, you know, for me, I almost went into theater actually when I was in, in high school and college. And so I'm constantly finding really cool synergies between my work in theater and my work as a scientist and a communicator. And I've actually taken and I've given workshops on how improv can improve effective science communication. And it can make some scientists really uncomfortable because again, maybe the training doesn't necessarily lead you in that direction. Um, or if you've never gotten up on stage or you've never had to improvise, it's, it can be uncomfortable. But a lot of people really get into it because we are human beings interacting with other human beings in the world. And 
theater is just a kind of structured way of doing that. And I think other kinds of storytelling are similar. I mean, we're constantly telling stories in every aspect of our lives. We tell stories to our children at night. We tell stories to the person sitting next to us on the bus, right? I mean, it's it's just, I think, something that we do as a, as a species. We've always been interested in, in stories and narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing that's really difficult about climate change is it's kind of a bad story on the face of it, right? Because there's no heroes. We're kind of all the villains. It happens everywhere at, you know, an unequal pace and on a really rapid timescales geologically, but kind of slow in the 24-hour news cycle. And, and so it can be really hard to get good stories from that. And I feel like the attempts that we make to impose stories on climate change have fallen flat a bit. So I, I feel like there's this, oh, let's let's personify Earth, Mother getting revenge on us. Like the Earth's just a rock, you know? It's a really special rock. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the Earth is not trying to punish us for bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we say mm-hmm. things like, you know, oh, these poor polar bears. You know, I, I love polar bears. But most people are like, eh, I've never met a polar bear. You know, I wish them well, but they're not my top priority right now. Or we tell these stories about people in the future, mm-hmm. and they feel like ciphers. You know, they don't feel real. It's, oh, and now in the future, they are all suffering because of your actions. Even in the face of great right. suffering, humans are still humans. People will still find things funny in the future. People will still experience joy and love and <laughs> happiness and sadness in the future. And I feel like a lot of times, like we tell this story about climate change, like, oh, it's going to ruin everything. And these poor people in the future who are not recognizable as people to you are, are going to be very sad. And so I, I'm just fascinated by this question of how do we take this slow moving giant thing with no real heroes and take stories from that tell interesting personal compelling stories this makes me think of how the day after tomorrow was more effective at raising awareness about climate change than an inconvenient truth which came out around the same time and i think that's not just because of the fact that one is a documentary and it had a graph uh, with a forklift and you know, the other the other was a blockbuster cinematic experience but i think also it's just it was a better story right it, it had it had better heroes it had more compelling drama and also this sort of satisfying sense that there's some resolution which we also expect from stories and so i think that makes it extra challenging to tell climate stories but i'm curious kate what do you think makes a good climate story and didn't you just watch the day after tomorrow i'm just looking on your twitter feed <laughs> literally yesterday <laughs> did you really i didn't even notice that <laughs> Totally set you up there. <laughs> yeah, we hatched this scheme to get people to pay us to watch movies with terrible, terrible science. Um, and then we give the money to charities trying to make the world a better place. Okay, I'm sorry, but th- I just want to point out that this movie has a paleoclimatologist and they use the phrase thermohaline circulation in the film. That was life-changing for me just as I was about to start grad school. Okay, I'm not going to lie to you. I hated (laughs) that movie so much that it made me sympathize with the vice president who doesn't want to do anything. Ah, the Dick Cheney guy? Because, you know, Dick Cheney's like, oh, um, we shouldn't restructure our whole economy on the basis of what one scientist thinks. And I'm like, no, we absolutely should not do that. Um, Especially because that one scientist does not appear to understand thermodynamics. But it's fine because neither does this movie, so whatever. Um, 
but stay tuned i will have many many thoughts on that movie (laughs) but i I do i do agree i will join you and kind of um hating on inconvenient truth because you know it's this powerpoint and 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 i think al gore you know his heart is in the right place he's trying to do the right thing but it's just this like relentless powerpoint of like here are all the bad things that are going to happen and here's some graphs and i totally agree with you Mm -hmm. that if Dennis Quaid was in that, like if it was Dennis Quaid being chased by a PowerPoint, that would be a much more compelling movie. <laughs> right? Script uh, idea but, written. Dennis Quaid being Netflix. chased by a PowerPoint. Maybe Jake Gyllenhaal being chased by maybe Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> rescues me from the PowerPoint that's chasing me. Um, or I rescue even better, I rescue Jake Gyllenhaal. There you go, there you go. So, Kate, one thing I was struck by, you know, we, as we're talking about compelling stories and stories that suck you in, I was really curious to know, how did you come up, this goes back to your uh, slaying the climate dragon, how did you come up with that analogy or with that structure? Because it embodied so much humanity while also sort of describing the, the threat of climate change in something tangible and relatable. How did you come up with that? I mean, the thing about fairy tales um, and I'm going to get yelled at by all of the really smart English professors who who study this and, and know this so much better than me. But the, the thing that I find about fairy tales is that because they are so simple, they're kind of like approximations in physics, right? Like where you assume everything's a sphere and there's no friction. Um, fairy tales seem like you assume, okay, well, I'm going to remove all the messiness of governance and there's just going to be a king and this virtuous princess, that's just shorthand for she's a good person and you should listen to her. I also, um, I have a, I have a small child at home, a three-year-old, and he is obsessed with dragons, mostly because of this book um, called Dragons Love Tacos, which I'm, I'm not sure is an accurate picture of how dragons are usually portrayed. Um, I'm, I'm a biologist. I'll say yes, sure. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Who doesn't? Right, confirmed. And so there's something about that fairy tale structure that I find really compelling and really comforting because it's so clear. It is simple, it is comforting, and and everybody's kind of familiar with the structure. You know, you read Once Upon a Time, and you kind of know what you're in for. I I sort of took that and and went from there. Um, I'm trying to do this again. I'm trying to think about other fairy tales um, that we can use to convey certain aspects of climate change. So if people have ideas, um, I am all ears. That would be an interesting challenge for our audience. Come up with a climate change fairy tale. If you can make Rapunzel a climate change hero, that would be an interesting challenge, I think. Yeah, so I get to spend a lot of time like, you know, on Wikipedia, like, what are the seven basic plots? Like, what's the hero's journey? And that's really interesting. Um, I should probably not be doing this. I should probably be doing work instead. But, you know, everybody needs a break every now and then. This makes me think that you must be a pretty prolific reader. And so I actually have two questions for you to wrap up. First, what have you been reading lately that you love? And secondly, you say that you don't think that you're a writer now, but that kind of implies that you might have some ideas in the back of your mind about writing a book one day. And I would love to hear about what that might be if that ever were to come to pass. So the answer to the second question is um, I cannot talk about that right now. (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Best answer ever. Um, Best non-answer ever. (laughs) And now I've forgotten the first question, except that it was very good. Yeah, you you strike me as a reader. And even though you have terrible taste in movies. (laughs) No, 
terrible taste in bad movies, which is probably good. What are you reading lately or what have you been reading that you love? I read this book called The Essex Serpent recently, which I just loved. It is um, a novel set in 1800s England when sort of paleontology was kind of becoming a thing. And so it's fiction. Um, there is a character, a wonderfully realized female character who's the center of the book, who's really into fossil hunting. And I loved that. I, I really highly recommend it. My reading honestly tends to be dictated by whatever the library has in paperback because I hate hauling like really heavy uh, hardbacks on the subway. I just finished um, SPQR, which is a history of ancient Rome. And like, let me tell you, it is not the right time in history to be reading about how the Roman Republic collapsed into autocracy and nobody thought that was a good idea, but nobody could do anything about it. That's not a very restful thing to be reading right now. No, and neither are all the books I've been reading about the First World War, <laughs> which has incredible parallels with current events that are very unsettling. Uh, we all just need to read Dinosaurs Love Tacos. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. I mean, I am actually also reading a really great book about flappers. That's Ooh, what's um, it called? I think it's called Flappers. <laughs> And it's what's really cool is that it gets into how flapper culture emerged, but also how it changed so many different aspects of, of American culture and also women's rights and a lot of internal clashes with feminism within the flapper community, I guess, if you, that's a word that could describe it. It's just a really fun book. Do you get this? I get this a lot. People ask me like, oh, what are the best books about climate change? And I kind of feel like I do this all the time in my day job. Like, I don't want to read for fun about climate change. Oh, this happens to me all the time. Um, it happens to me all the time, too. I tend to read fewer books about climate science. I do have some books that I think are great about climate change, or not. if not great, they're the best that we have out there. Books like The, the Long Emergency or The Two Mile Time Machine that sort of describe the different aspects of of how we know what we know about the earth system or predicting what might happen in the future. There are some books that I feel like I read because I have to, like Merchants of Doubt, which is a fantastic book, but again, kind of a bit of a busman's holiday in that it just feels a little too close to home. But what I tend to really love are more, more fiction treatments of, of climate or that are sort of climate adjacent, adjacent things like Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake and the, the other books in that trilogy, Claire V. Watkins' Gold Fame Citrus or Nora Jemison's amazing Broken Earth trilogy, which is basically a fantasy geology world, which is fantastic and amazing. And so I, I tend to like a lot of more, I guess, post-apocalyptic or dystopian or science fiction-y treatments that involve climate kind of peripherally or, or, or sort of environmental catastrophe rather than the climate nonfiction. Although often I do because I feel like it's my duty to know what the, you know, to know what's going on. A book that I actually started, my wife recommended it to me. She's a climatologist, actually. But she read it, and she's like, you would love this. Um, it's Elizabeth Colbert's The Sixth Extinction. Oh, that's so good, isn't it? Yeah, and, that's a, an example of a really great one. Yeah, yeah and I've been, it's been sitting on my bedside table, and I started it. It was a weird paradox. I was learning new things while not learning anything new at the same time. Uh -huh. And I think that's what I feel like when my students say, hey, where can I learn more about climate change? Or where can I read something about climate change? It's like, I, I'm a little paralyzed because like you said, Kate, we sort of work on these things for our day jobs. And so we want to be in spaces, especially in the things that we read that aren't necessarily, like we want to learn about dinosaurs eating tacos, right? 
Dragons um, eating tacos. Dragons, excuse me, not dinosaurs, dragons eating tacos. So Accuracy is important. Accuracy is important, <laughs> um, especially with taco consumption. So Elizabeth Colbert's book was probably the one that I've been trying to page through that I've been recommended but have been struggling to get through because of this exact sort of paradox. Yeah. If you're into mass extinctions, which um, we are in my household um, because we have a three-year-old, I read um, The Ends of the World by Peter Brannon, which is about the six mass extinctions kind of from a more geological perspective. And I thought that was really, Mm -hmm. really well written. It kind of occurred to me that what we do as climate scientists, especially modelers, like we are literally world builders. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we mm. are building a world on a computer. You know, we can do like really messed up stuff to that world, right? Because it's it's a fake computer world. So we can be like, what if there was a volcano in London and set that off and, and see what that would do to the atmospheric circulation, you know? Or we can be like, what if we quadrupled the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere immediately? It strikes me that like we have this really powerful tool because we can use science to build worlds. And that's what all good science fiction, all good fantasy does. And, you know, even all good historical novels right like they build worlds they make you feel like you inhabit this different reality but it still feels really sort of real and visceral and it strikes me that we have this amazing tool that we could do a lot more with oh definitely and but you know everything from video games to movies to to novels i've sat on a, a panel about world building at a science fiction convention and talked a lot about how the ecology and sort of just earth system science of a lot of fantasy and science fiction worlds is really frustrating to me. I think about, for example, 10,000 BC, which among many other flaws, <clears throat> apparently we're just going to pick on Roland Emmerich in this episode. There's this moment where they go from like the tundra into the jungle and it's just so ecologically improbable. Like those two biomes are not adjacent to one another. And it was just, it kind of just threw me out of that experience. But one thing that really struck with me was an author in the audience thanked me after and was like, you know, I've been spending all this time focusing on the generation ship, right? Like how do we get to this other world and the physics of interstellar travel that I forgot about how to handle what to do when they get there. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a nice parallel for how we approach discussions of climate change, right? We often focus on the sort of technological solutions or the approaches to those solutions, rather than starting with the world that we want to see, and then sort of basically figuring out how we're going to get, like, what's what's the pathway to that place, to that world that's maybe fairer and cleaner and nicer overall. That seems like a great way to end it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Good, good. Ramesh is signaling. Nice segue. Um, so, Kate, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today and, and talking to us, not about the science that you probably spend 95% of your time on, but your fantastic fable and all of your other projects. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, that's our show for this week. We really hope that you all enjoyed listening. And with Thanksgiving coming up here in the U.S. next week, all of you will have many opportunities to try out your own storytelling skills on a captive audience. Your Warm Regards homework this week is to have a conversation about climate change sometime over the holiday. You can get into a fight with your Uncle Rick. You can maybe bond with a stranger as you wait in line for your Black Friday deals. Whatever you choose, Try to do your best over the holidays to fight climate silence. So with that, I'd like to thank our fantastic team, who are all doing this for free, by the way, 
Eric Mack, our producer, and also a couple of new team members, including a former listener, now team member Joe Stormer, who's going to be generously providing transcripts. This is something I've been hoping for since the beginning. This is super exciting. I'd also like to welcome Justin Schell, who is one of our new producers, and Catherine Pinehart, who's going to be helping us out with some outreach and communication efforts. Yeah, and I think it's really important that we also take this opportunity to thank Jesse Ann Baines, who's been an amazing producer on the show as well. And she's moving on to bigger and better things. And so we wish her all the luck in the world in her future pursuits. So thank you so much, Jesse, and good luck. Yeah, thank you, Jesse. And again, thanks to all of you for listening. You can listen to all of our episodes on wherever you get your podcasts iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. You can find us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards. You can email us uh, your favorite climate books at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. We also love hearing from you about ideas for the show. We really want to make this work for you. And also, we love just getting some feedback. So if you can take a moment to give us a review, that's immensely helpful for us. And also, you know, share us with a friend. So thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you have a wonderful and warm holiday. Take care.